Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this is another one of our live Q&A sessions we hold via our YouTube channel. In this Q&A, we had Phil Keeble, who is a former Camera, F4 Phantom and Tornado F3 pilot. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Or you can visit us at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate to donate directly. Thank you and enjoy. Right, so as you know, everyone, we're with Phil Keeble today. And as you know, he was an ex-RAF pilot. He flew many planes, the Chipmunk, the Hunter, the F4 and the Tornado F3. And is also an author, which his book got published last year and was absolutely brilliant. So, Keebs, why don't you tell us a bit about the book you wrote? The book I wrote just so happens I have a copy here. Can you see it? Okay, well, we assume that uh, it's working. Right, the book. It's basically a story of my life in the Air Force. It uh, starts from the from the days of training, and it goes right through to the days when I flew the tornado. It's, uh, I think it's a cracking read, even if I say so myself. Um, I wrote it, started writing about 30 years ago, and uh, I wrote one chapter and then left it for about 27 years, and then I thought, well, I better get on with something. So I started writing the odd chapter. I started off with my first days on the chipmunk, and how I nearly killed myself doing aerobatics. <laughs> then I move on to the jet provost and uh, basic jet training. Then on to the NAT and advanced uh, jet training. And then uh, I then got streamed onto the camera. And all the way through, there are some very nice pictures of cameras and tornadoes and chipmunks. And you know, it's a, it's a good um, and phantoms, uh, one of my favourite aircraft. And there's also personal photographs and all sorts in there as well. So I then got a ground tour uh, after I was a QFI and ended up on the Jaguar Simulator. And I thought that was probably the end of my flying career, fast jets. But I got a chance to fly the Jag, which I did, went solo in it. And then I then uh, started flying the Hunter. And from there to the Phantom on 43 Squadron and then to the OCU at Coningsby. And from all there, I then ended up um, staying on the OCU, but moving across to the Tornado F3. And uh, I did 28 years altogether in the Air Force. And it, uh, I thought, well, there's a good story there. The thing is, though, that as I talk to so many other people, they've all got good stories. All the people I, I, I have on uh, Facebook and, and on Twitter, I talk to them, and they've got brilliant, brilliant stories. And, in fact, I've incorporated one or two of the you know, the bits and comments from, from mates of mine, mainly navigators, who uh, felt they could contribute. Uh, and I said to one of them, why don't you write a book? And they said, well, we couldn't be asked. So that's fair comment. But um, that's so that's the first book. And then I'm now writing uh, a second book, which is in conjunction with oh, my old mate Dave Gledhill, who's written a series of brilliant books. He's written this one, which is on the Tornado F3, which I can highly recommend. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote one on Fighters in the Falklands, which is another one he wrote, 
which I think is even better because I was down the Falklands. And then one of his first ones he wrote was Phantom in Focus, which again is a brilliantly good book. Uh, so he's written those three that I've got. He's also written a whole load more um, on uh, flying out of um, East, uh, sorry West Germany and being involved in that. And he's written other books on operational testing. And uh, he's written about seven novels, I think. So he's a prolific writer. Anyway, we all wanted to um, write another book, but we weren't sure of the subject. So Dave and I were chatting about it one day, and we decided to write a book between ourselves. So um, I write about what it was going through pilot training, and then Dave writes about what it was like going through navigator training. We go right back to 1965, and the theme of the book is basically um, – sorry, I'm just reading a comment on the side. The theme of the book is basically how do you train a phantom Cold War crew? We haven't got a permanent title or a fixed title. It would probably be called something like Poadua. And the reason it's called Poadua, the um, motto of the Royal Air Forces, is because this year is the 100th anniversary of the Royal Air Force. And so we thought it was a good time to bring a book out about the Air Force. It's also, in May, the 60th anniversary of the uh, conception and the flight of the Phantom. So we thought that would be another good opportunity to write about that. And the Phantom's always a big seller, always a big seller, because people just love the Phantom. And it is one of the world's most iconic jets, no doubt about it. So anyway, Dave and I, we got together. I wrote the front bit. He wrote the back bit. And we've just finished this week amalgamating the two halves of the book to make it into a seamless and uh, I think a brilliant book. I, I'm not just blowing my own trumpet or Dave's trumpet, but it really is a good book. I, I've read it, the proof side of it, and I love it. Dave said to me today, he said, I've just been rereading it for about the third time, and he says it still makes me chuckle in places because we wrote it as aircrew, not as necessarily as novelists or writers running, but as aircrew would talk to you over a pint in the pub. We just wrote it, and it gets a little technical, being specifically about the Phantom, but I don't think we can help that because I think it will appeal to those who want to know something about training, those who want to know something about other aircraft, and those, of course, who want to know all about the Phantom. So um, that, hopefully, we're talking to a publisher at the moment, and that's the publisher who did our first four or five books, and that's uh, Font Hill. I spoke to the publisher today and they're making a decision. The signs are good, but nothing's set in concrete. So as we say in the Air Force, it's set in aspic jelly. In other words, it will wobble around a little bit, and it may come out as and when, but uh, I should be able to announce something on either Dave's um, Facebook page or my Facebook page or on his website. I'm having a website built as we speak. Uh, should be up and running in, um, next week. And we'll announce things on there as well. Let's have a look at the questions. Someone's jealous of my flying career. Yeah. Actually, that, that, that is a, a very good point, uh, the Ralphster. I consider myself exceptionally lucky to have flown in the Air Force. Exceptionally. I had, to my mind, probably the best job that any young man or woman these days could wish for. I flew around the world on cameras and I did an enormous amount of combat on the Phantom of the Tornado. Um, 
I flew fast, I flew high, I flew low, I flew slow, too slow at times, nearly killed myself once or twice, which if you've read the book, um, you can um, you, you, you can read all about. I'm reading the comments at the same time, one from Nick uh, Ashwell, where can I get that office? Well, 28 years in the um, 28 years in the Air Force, Nick, and um, eBay. Basically, I've got a Red Arrows helmet there at the back, which I've got off the subject, but don't worry about that. I will. Um, that helmet belonged to Carl Fogarty, the motorbike racer, and it's uh, signed by him. Uh, I won't stand up and get it because, uh, well, I might do it at the end. Um, but it's got the red arrows. That's the helmet he flew when he flew at Scampton. I've got all the paperwork for it, the form he signed. And I managed to find a, uh, a collector who was selling it, and I bought it off him. Yeah, a bit expensive, but there isn't another one in the world. The helmet to the other side of it is my 43 Squadron helmet, which has got the uh, black and white checkerboards on with the scarf. There's an oxygen mask on that one. And then around the room, I've got my flying badges over this shoulder. Wait for my hand to catch up 20 seconds later. Um, and there's the Phantom Thousand Hour, the Tornado Thousand Hour, the Jaguar and my RAF badge. And above that is my squadron badges. Not all of them, just the operational ones. Uh, and then I've got a very nice painting of a – oh, sorry, that one's a print. A very nice print of a Phantom intercepting a pair of bears. What else have I got? I've got a very nice one of a tornado down the Falklands. It was done by the guy that does the wildlife, or his daughter of the guy that does the wildlife pictures. Oh, I can't remember his name, but I will. And then over my other shoulder, I've got uh, uh, some uh, 1435 flight, um, which was the uh, uh, gladiators in Malta, Faith, Hope, and Charity. So that's a very nice one. And then over my other shoulder, uh, somewhere over there, there's a picture of a PR9. Right. Would Phil consider natoring his book for Audible? Colin Sweetman. I always find the aviation books so much better when I hear it from the voice of the author. Yeah, I'll consider that, Colin. Let me know. What was my favorite air defense or ground attack? Oh, wow. Um, my three favorite aircraft, in no particular order, but up at the my favorite first, was the Hunter. I didn't fly the Hunter for long. I flew it on the weapons unit. Uh, and then I, I hung around the weapons unit for a while, um, and I managed to get a whole load of more flights afterwards in exchange for me doing um, some business for them. Um, and I love the Hunter. Single seat, um, brilliant to fly, a classic, like, like owning an E-Type. My next favorite, I think, is probably a twin-engine Hunter called the Canberra PR9. The PR9 um, was a wonderful airplane, had more power than you needed, it would go up to above 60, 70,000 feet. It was also very fast. Without the um, fuel tanks on, it would do 550, no trouble. And I even know crews that did faster than that when they had to. Um, and what I used to love doing was on the uh, NATO photographic exercises, we on 39 Squadron were the directing staff. So we would go out in the morning, photograph the targets, come back, and then the Phantoms and the G91s and whoever would go out and uh, uh, see if they could find them for real. And then they, we would compare, or they, the staff would compare their photographs with ours. But what I used to do was I used to lurk, because we have plenty of fuel, and when the Phantoms called initials and doing 420 knots, 
I used to put some more coal on the boiler and overtake them doing 550 knots and go in front of them and get into the circuit and land before they did, which used to really piss them off. How long was I stormtrooper? Have I got a stormtrooper? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, you can see that, can you? Oh, yes, I can see it now, just, just over there. Stormtrooper helmet. <coughs> yeah, that's a collectible, that is. As you can probably gather, I've got a, a, a very nice model of a, of a um, uh, F3 which I got for one of my important birthdays recently, which is rather lovely. Um, but, yes, as you can gather, I'm a, a collectaholic. I uh, collect all sorts of things, mainly militaria, um, and I just love it. And uh, one day someone's going to have to get rid of it for me. Um, am I retired, John Senna? Yes, I am. I retired. I came out of the Air Force, uh, what they call the peace dividend, which was about 1990, well, it started earlier than 94. But um, basically, uh, after the end of the Cold War, as such, um, they decided they had uh, too many airplanes, too many aircrew, time for some of you to go. So there may be an offer, which wasn't a brilliant offer, um, but it was, it, it was a good offer. And I left, became a civil servant for two years as a civilian tornado instructor would you believe which was a bit incongruous because i knew a lot about the tornado haven't flown it for four five six years and um i was the one that knew the answers but i was a civilian so i had my own flying suit made a black one and i had gold crowns put on the shoulder tabs and i had a, a lady embroider it with mister so um people <laughs> what the hell's going on here i've lost where i was um, oh, yes, uh, PR9, uh, fantastic airplane, fantastic airplane. And um, I love flying that. That was the twin engine. It had twin Avens, um, same engines as the Lightning, but without reheats. Uh, and so there wasn't much that could touch it, except maybe a Lightning itself. Um, and uh, at high level, the Vulcan, of course. The Vulcan just turned on a sixpence at almost any height. But um, so that was my second favorite. My third favorite, and I wouldn't say it was a favorite, but I respected it probably more than the aircraft, was the Phantom. The Phantom was, uh, oh, it's a spin story. You want a spin story? All right, we'll talk about it in a, in, in a second, Griffin. Um, but the Phantom was a bugger. Sorry, my language is getting bad. The Phantom was a difficult aircraft to fly at, to when it was slow because it had uh, adverse aileron yaw caused by some very strange um, spoilers and uh, wing crank and all the rest of it. And if you didn't use the rudders to turn at low speed, the aircraft will go in an incipient spin. I remember one day an American test pilot saying to me, would I show him what it was like at very low speed? So I said, I don't think you want to do that, do you? And he said, I do, because I'm a test pilot and I'm under training and I want to see it. I said, all right. So I briefed him what would happen, and I briefed him I would take control if things got bad. We went to height, safe height, brought it back to slow speed. I said, right, use the ailerons. And I scared myself, actually, and him, because this aircraft, this Phantom, just went into an enormous hissy fit, threw itself around the sky. I took control and centered everything up into the right drills for recovery, and we went back to straight and level flight again. And... <laughs> <laughs> he said, bloody hell. He said, this aircraft should never have been released to service. 
in a way, he was right because it was uh, a mishmash of, of, of uh, aerodynamics. In a way, he couldn't have been more wrong because it was one of the best weapons platform that the RAF or the USAF or the Israelis or the Greeks or any other air force that flew it had. Any accidents or mistakes? Okay, well, let's keep on spinning. Um, I was flying the Bulldog, and I was the Bulldog had a bit of a reputation, civilian aircraft, but bought by the Air Force. The Bulldog had a bit of a reputation for going into spins that wouldn't recover. And one guy uh, had announced one day that uh, at a conference, he got into a spin, it wouldn't recover, so he made the wrong drills and it recovered. And we all stored it away and thought, hmm, that's interesting. One day with a student, I actually had the same situation. Went into a spin, told the student to recover. He said, I am, sir. I said, all right, let me check. I checked and he was, but he wouldn't recover. So as we were approaching the height to bail out, I thought, well, I've got one chance. So I did the incorrect drill, according to the uh, uh, the agents, and it recovered correctly, uh, which was quite scary. So I then landed, report. Oh, sorry, I went back up and did another one, and it was fine. Uh, I reported it, and they sent up uh, some test pilots. I flew with them, and I think we did 125 turns in one day on about five sorties or so. It was horrible. I never felt so sick. But so, so that was a spinning sortie. I'll come back to crashes in a minute. Um, but there's a question there I've just missed um, on. Oh, the the F. I think it was the F eighteen, F six, F seventeen. No, wrong. F eighteen, F fourteen story. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, isn't what Martin Baker ejection seats were made for? Making Phantom safer aircraft. Yeah, very much so. I have a, a large number of friends who ejected. Uh, most of them are about half an inch shorter than when I knew them. And of course, if all else fails, the Phantom had two recovery drills. Um, if you try the right drill and it didn't work, one was pop the chute. And in the early days of flying on squadrons, the Americans came back with a lot of empty tail chute bags in the back. Now, I know a story about that. The American colonel said, next person that lands without a tail chute is going to get grounded for three weeks. And um, then the boss of the squadron went to the uh, colonel and said, you don't want to do that because if they get into a spin, they won't pull the tail chute and we'll lose a, a, a phantom. So he rescinded that order, and it was still in place when I was there, that if you had a, a spin, you pop the tail shoot. Failing all that, excuse me, <coughs> the uh, the bottom line was, when it got dangerous, you pulled the Martin Bacon, Martin Martin Baker, and away you went out of the aircraft and onto your main chute. Um, right. One piece of advice for IMC and night ratings. Yeah, don't cheat. It's easy to cheat. It's easy to look out. Uh, again, I'm full of anecdotes. If you don't like them, um, I think Coronation Street's on now. It is soon, so <laughs> watch Coronation Street. But um, anecdotes, yeah. A friend of mine, I won't mention his name. We went through training together. I know for a fact that he used to look out occasionally when he was under the hood. And when he got a bit disorientated, he would um, have a quick look at the real world and uh, hope that nobody would notice. Fine. He got through the basic jet course. He got through the advanced jet course, and he was uh, did the weapons unit and then ended up on uh, lightnings. Anyway, one night, um, 
he said to the powers to be, I can't do this anymore. I cannot fly a lightning at high speed, at low level, at night. It's too scary. And as a result, I don't know what he's doing now. Nice lad. It's a shame he had to go. Um, but one of the exercises we used to do, which was same as in the lightning, was we would go down to about a 1,000 feet over the North Sea, which is as black as the ace of space, and we would accelerate with the instructor, and, um, to begin with myself as the student, and then later myself as the instructor in the back, we would accelerate to supersonic. Now, because of the change in, in pressure across the top of the wing and around the wings and the fuselage, you get the transonic jump. Oh, my eyes are sore. I can see myself blinking. Uh, you get a transonic jump when the pressure would change and the um, pressure instruments would all uh, spin around for a few seconds. Uh, and it would show rates of climb and rates of descent, which weren't there. Now, the Lightning had a particular nasty habit of showing the altimeter disappearing to below sea level, which, as you can imagine, on a dark and stormy night was very uh, disconcerting. What we taught the students, and what I was taught, obviously, was to look at the HGU, the Horizon uh, Gyro Unit, or the Artificial Horizon, or whatever you want to call it, um, or the Attitudes Indicator, and believe that. That wasn't going anywhere. And so you had to put your trust in your instruments. If you didn't, then you'd get the leans or vertigo or you get disorientation and you could end up in all sorts of trouble. So don't cheat and, um, and believe the important instruments. Uh, I, I don't suppose men, modern aircraft, of course, have got very clever computers, which know this is going to happen, like the tornado and the Eurofighter, EFA, uh, what do they call it now, Typhoon, and they stop a lot of that happening. So don't worry about it. What's another question? Have I ever flown with FLIR? No. An enhanced vision system. Only NVGs. NVGs, um, brilliant. I flew one of the very first ones on QRA up at uh, up in Scotland, and you could see aircraft airliners flashing away. I don't know the distance, but you could say probably 40 miles away. You could, well, when we first got them, we used to put them on and creep. <laughs> So I'm laughing at my own anecdotes. <laughs> Never to be done. Um, we would creep around the airfield with our MBGs on and, and jump out on people, and they wouldn't know we were there until, until we went boo or something like that. <laughs> Very naughty. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we used to fly with MBGs, which was good. Um, we didn't in the PR9, and we were supposed to do night low level in the PR9. With what? A radar altimeter. And um, oh, that was it. So we used to fly around routes around um, Britain mainly, and then we'd go off into a range and we would drop our night photo flashes. And um, when I did a trip like that in daylight one day, it scared the pants off me because I suddenly realized just how close we were to the ground at times. It was all perfectly safe. It was, I think it was something like not uh, highest ground plus a 1,000 feet. 15 miles either side of the track or something like that. Um, but even having said that, I remember one night, I thought we dropped our photo flashes in the range until we got back to base and the film was developed. And there on the film, in black and white, there were houses and schools and churches and, and shops and things. And I got a real good bollocking for that. I've still got it in my logbook. My logbook was stamped by it. 
Right. Uh, have you ever seen anything? You, oh, oh, yeah, UFOs. You've obviously read the book or your um, something or a bikini. No, I'm not going to answer that one. Um, right. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah, UFOs. Uh, three. One night I was flying over the Mediterranean in a Canberra at medium to high level, and I saw below me, I saw uh, a ball of fire, which I could see reflecting in the water below. So there was nothing underneath it. I could see that around because it was quite a big glow. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> this was in the days before oil rigs and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's better. Um, so I don't know what that was. And I told my navigator and he had a quick look for his periscope and he could see nothing that would explain what it was. Very strange, that one. I don't know what it was. On another night, I was looking out, idly watching the stars, and one star, two stars together, twins, one rotated round the other through 270 degrees and then shot off an enormous speed in, 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 in a westerly direction. And I thought, what on earth was that? The third UFO I spotted, I reported uh, to the radar this time. Normally in the Air Force, we didn't. We normally kept quiet about it because, you know, the Air Force, you know, wasn't always that keen on knowing about them. Uh, and then coming towards me was a bright light, a round bright light. So I said to the radar unit, I said, I've got this aircraft coming towards me or this object coming towards me. What have you got on radar? And they said, nothing on radar. I said, well, I can see it. And they said, there's nothing on radar. So um, I thought, oh, great. So I said to my navigator, Jim, I said, look, can you see what that bright light is ahead? He said, yes. I said, what is it? He said, it's Venus. <laughs> so I said, oh, a planet. Well, I don't think we'll hit that tonight. And uh, carrying on. But I felt about that big, you know, not knowing my planetary system. Right. How long did, how much time did I spend planning a sortie, excluding QRA? And did it very much depend on type? Yes, the PR9, we would, first of all, get um, a supply of maps wherever we were going, uh, around the world or in this country, and then we would spend about 45 minutes cutting, pasting, plotting where we were going to go, um, pre-IPs, IPs, turning points, targets, all that sort of stuff, um, and then we would talk about it together as a crew uh, and then go and brief and go out. So that would take probably just over an hour. If you're in the V-Force, that same sortie would probably take three hours because they then go off for a two-hour meal, which we didn't get. Uh, in air defense, um, air defense was um, you briefed normally half an hour before the sortie. Now, that meant that everybody sat in the room and you told them all the frequencies, the aircraft, the radar allocations, what, the, um, what you were going up to do, the, the aim of the sortie, uh, the weather everything you can use, and that would take half an hour, and then half an hour to go out to the jet, do the external checks, the walk rounds, start up, and go. When I went on tactical leadership program, uh, we used to work with, um, obviously, either in one day we would be the support and the protection for the mud package, and on another day we would be the homeland defenders. Well, that was great fun. Um, on the days when we were the support for the guerrilla, we would all go into a, a room. The, um, the main briefing was given, and then they would turn to the air defenders and say, air defenders, you can now go off for a well-deserved coffee break while the mud movers 
do all their scribbling and drawing and plotting bombs and what stuff. So I would think the Mud Moves will take at least another 40 minutes after we had just chatted about what we were going to do uh, before they were ready. So, yeah, um, so that's that's a good question. I like that one. Um, do I think those UFOs aliens may be watching? <laughs> if people might think I'm from another planet. I can assure you I'm not. But, um, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, there's a good question come up. Don't let that one go. Um, I'm sure Keys will answer your question. He's just missed Michael Hughes. Aircraft, you wish you could have flown. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, two, basically. Uh, the first aircraft I wish I could have flown, uh, and I was given the opportunity to, um, and to this day I bitterly regret it, was the Spitfire on the Battle of Britain Memorial flight. When I arrived at Coningsby from uh, Lucas, the station commander said to me, a guy called Bob Arnott, he said, Phil, uh, I'm hoping that you'll be joining the Battle of Britain flight. And I went, well, actually, so I've got three very small children um, who need me at the moment, more than the BBMF do, so I'll take a rain check. When my kids were old enough not to appreciate me anymore, and fathers will know what I'm talking about, uh, apart from being a taxi service, of course, uh, I thought, oh, well, right, now's the time. And, of course, there were no vacancies. Now, I bitterly, bitterly regret that. And do my kids care? No. Do they, heck? Well, whatever they usually say, get over it. So I've got over it. Uh, I regret not joining the Red Arrows. But, that, I mean, I've flown the Hawks, so that's all right. But they wouldn't have me, um, which I think was a gross a mistake. Um, but the aircraft I sat in, oh, I know I've got another one. Sorry, I could probably go all night. Um, I was also offered to fly the Mosquito from the Strathallan collection up in Scotland. But just before I was about to do any uh, business with them, that uh, went bankrupt, I believe, or went out of business. And I think the Mosquito they had went out to Canada. Oh, now, Mosquito, yeah, lovely, lovely airplane. And the third one, which I'll get to in the end, was the F-15. I One came into Lucas one day. I used to sit in a variety of different aircraft, uh, like the F-18s and some of the Russian stuff. But the F-15 I sat in and I thought, I just love this airplane. It's big, it's chunky, it's a bit like myself. It's bold, it's brash. Everything was an F-4, but different, modern. All the switches were there, but they were in the right place for a change. The F-4 was like, oh, I don't know, a box of frogs. Someone had thrown, or a mad woman's knitting. Someone had thrown all the switches into the cockpit and said, there, boy, sort it out, which, which, which was a pain. But the F-15 was a proper sorted aircraft. It had power. It had turn capability. It had weapons, radars, and the two-seater had a navigator which if anybody asked me, um, John Senna said, I want to be like you, but I'm only seven years old. John, you've got to start sometime. I start, I wanted to fly when I was about your age. I used to go and watch the, um, the hunters do their nine-ship uh, aerobatic loops, and I said to my dad then, I want to fly. And I didn't get it first time. I had to go off and do other jobs. I became a chemist for the gas board. Um, didn't last long. It was horrible. Then I became a policeman. Um, I've got a police helmet somewhere. Oh, yeah, it's probably a little bit low. Hang on. Where was it? It's over here somewhere behind me. Um, can't see it. Never mind. Um, yeah, I joined the police force for something to do. Uh, and I loved it, actually. And I would have stayed there. 
But then the Air Force let me in the second time, so um, you can't quite see the helmet. Where was it? Uh, oh, there it is, just just underneath the 43 helmet. Um, oh, what else? Someone was asking earlier um, about the the dissimilar con uh, combat that we had when I was in Cyprus, which was between the um, F3 and the Hawk versus the U.S. Navy F-14s and F-18s. Okay, I'll fill you a little bit on that. Uh, in about in 1989, we went out to Cyprus, as we used to most years. Um, oh, worst weather. Are oh, you asking so many great questions? I'll come back to them in a minute. Ask them again later when I finish. Um, we went out to Cyprus, and we flew against one of the other U.S. carriers, and we got marbleized. The Phoenix missiles just shot us out the air. We didn't get very much combat. And what little combat we did, uh, they were on top of us. Um, we didn't do too badly close up, but nothing special. Second year we went out, we had the Hawks with us. And the plan was that we would go in as a package called MFFO, Multi-Force Fighter Operation, or Mixed Force Fighter Operation. Yeah, that's more like it. And we went in with one uh, Tornado and one Hawk together. And then about three or five miles off our wing was another tornado and another hawk. And what we did was that we went into the fight against the American Navy and they decided to ignore the hawks and concentrate on the tornadoes. Big mistake. The hawks had Sidewinder nine golfs on board and they just waxed their ass because um, they're a brilliantly turning aircraft. So the Americans decided they wouldn't do that again and... Um, so we then set up for another fight uh, on another occasion. And we now came in, instead of three to five miles apart, we came in at 10 miles apart. <coughs> now, the Americans were coming in at three to five miles apart. Whichever way they turned onto whichever package, they were going to turn their tails against the other package. So the other package would just come in there six o'clock, shoot them, and that was that. What we used to do was... Um, we would run the hawks as far as fast as they would go in towards the fight. Once the hawks called the uh, tally, we would pump the burners in, fire a fox one, and bust out the far side, get to about 12 miles, very brave, turn around and come back into the fight. We would then lock up in the uh, head-up display, and if we could um, see the aircraft, it was a big one, um, Oh, okay, Mike, thank you. Um, so I've had a message from Mike. <laughs> I can scroll up or down. I'll do that in a minute. Um, <laughs> I love technology. If you knew the trouble, we had to get the technology working this evening. Oh, dear, yeah, we did have a bit of trouble, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I didn't fancy my tea afterwards. I was so wound up. Anyway, we're here. Um, if we could see the target, it was obviously an F-14 or an F-18. If we couldn't see the target, it was a hawk. It was a hawk. We broke the lock and locked to something else. If it was an F-14 or an F-18, we would shoot it. And then the Hawks would mop up the rest. Brilliant. Worked a treat. Third trip, the Americans came in 10 miles apart, which was brilliant. Great tactic. Only we were now 20 miles apart. So whichever package they turned into, the other package would have at them. Uh, and so at the end of the week, I think it was something like 16-0 to the Air Force uh, against the Navy. Now. That's not to say that that was 
because um, I know the Americans will be incensed by that. That's not to say that that is a typical picture of what would happen. That was just a scenario we set up to give it a try. Now, I know it was used by the Sea Harriers down the Falklands to a similar effect and worked out very well against the Argentinians. But I think the big thing that we learned from that, or I think the Air Force has always known it to an extent, certainly since the end of the fixed wing, um, you know, the mighty wing days of the World War II, is that flexibility is what counts. You've got to be free to think and to maneuver and to bring up new tactics and to try it and see what happens. Now, I've just been reading a guy called uh, Robin Olds, who was a um, triple ace from World War II and uh, Vietnam. And his point is exactly the same. When he became in charge of the 8th Tactical Fighting Wing, which later became known as the Wolfpack, he made the point was that they were the wishes of those in higher authority. And he said, no way. No way. We are going to be flexible. Uh, we're going to fight against the Vietnamese. And one of the things he did was he realized that the F-105 Thunder Chiefs were getting uh, very badly beat up by the Vietnamese. So on um, one occasion, he set up a flight of phantoms using the uh, 105 frequencies, call signs and code words. Um, no weapons on except missiles. They didn't have a gun in the early days on the F-4C which is a big mistake. And he went out and he flew the F-105 profiles over Vietnam. The mix came up looking to have a go at the 105s and found that all of a sudden there was a flight of phantoms ready, willing and able, locked and loaded, as the Americans say, who had at them. And they, actually, I believe the Vietnamese didn't come up for about three weeks after that. So flexibility, that is the big thing there. Um, and where were we? We got lost usual stuff uh the difference between the ref yes absolutely right the uh, finger four is a good formation um what we now probably widen out a bit to called uh, battle which is uh, one aircraft as the leader is uh, number two about three to four miles depending on visibility on his far wing and then um numbers three and four in fighting wing on either side. You get superb crossover and you've got superb maneuverability. You can do what you like. You can do cross turns, turnabouts, all sorts of, and you can pull as hard as you like. Um, and so, yeah, I think the Air Force has learned that lesson. And there are tactics, which I don't want to talk about, um, which the Air Force used, certainly in the early days of the tornado, when we use tactics uh, with our missiles and radars, which uh, extended the range of the missile enormously. Um, I don't think that's a problem these days, but if I tell you what it was, someone's going to shoot me. I can hear the drone hovering overhead now, <laughs> waiting to launch a, uh, um, a shrike attack on this house. <laughs> so we'll, <laughs> we'll leave that one. Yeah, uh, right, from uh, Ralph, sir, again. You loved aerobatics, didn't you? Uh Yes, I loved aerobatics. I, I thought aerobatics, oh, hang on, someone was saying, Sean Everston, I was there in 89, and some of the FA fags, fighter attack guys were quite cross. I, I bet. Bye, John. John Sens is going. Bye-bye, John. Um, Sean Everton, yes, they were quite cross. I'll come back to the aerobatics in a minute from Ralph. But, yeah, the Americans, I'm afraid, don't like losing. There's no point getting cross 
No point getting mad. You've got to get wise, and that's the big thing about all these things. You're going to get your eye shot at some point in your career. You've got to learn the lessons. What did I do wrong? What did they do right? How do I stop it happening again? Uh, signing the official secret acts <laughs> never expires. Yes, you're right to an extent. It never expires. So um, I'm trying to keep away from anything that uh, that um, that is a bit too controversial. Um, and we have to. When we write books, um, when we talk online, it's very easy to get carried away as if you were in a real bar, talk, you know, shooting the breeze, spinning the lines, and um, realise that you're, you're actually on public uh, um, uh, modern uh, videos, and that's going to be dangerous. Aerobatics. Let's go back to aerobatics. Um, yeah, I loved arrows. I started in the chipmunk with the, the loop, then the barrel roll, uh, and then I tried a slow roll, which my instructor showed me, and then when I was on my own, I thought, I'll have a go at that and um, nearly killed myself. I ended up flying through a Cotswold farmyard very, very, very low and very, very fast, for a chipmunk anyway. And I thought, hmm, don't do that again. But as I got more confident, I, uh, you get to put a sequence together, stall turns, noddy turns, hesitation rolls, um, emblemons, whatever they call those. Um, the one thing about a lot of RAF aircraft is you can't really do flick maneuvers, which a lot of the civilian aircraft can do. Uh, and I love watching some of the flick maneuvers from the stamps and the, uh, you know, the Zlins and people like that. Uh, by the way, did an AIM-54 ever shoot down early in combat? My understanding is they shot them as decoys. Yes. Uh, the AIM-54, we thought at the time, were... I'll come back to the weather forecast one, Colin. Don't go away. I promise I will. Um, we thought the AIM-54 Phoenix was probably the biggest and bestest thing in the world. And there was no defense against it except um, go into a hardened aircraft shelter and stay there for the rest of the sortie. I now hear stories coming out from uh, people who've done exchanges with the Americans and did some flight testing that the um, AIM-54 wasn't probably as perfect as was led to believe. But that is the thing about um, having a weapon. It's, it's not necessarily having to use it. It's making the other side realize that you could use it. They don't know what it can do. What do they call that? Um, disingenuity or whatever, spoofing. And I think that the AIM-54 um, was quite a, a potent weapon without ever having been fired because I think a lot of people would do what we wanted to do which was run away bravely um, and then come back another day. Because now you've got all sorts of ASRAMs and AMRAMs and A3Ms and things, and now they really are, really are top of the art. Uh, and so it's a dangerous place to fly in a combat zone these days, so send up a drone. Um, let me just... Um, <laughs> ah, LZ. Okay, there we go. I'll talk to him in a minute. Um, let me... No... Uh, I'm going to come on to the weather, but does any of your RAF flight hours go towards your PPL? Very few. When I, a lot of my friends came out in the 80s because the Air Force was not too happy a place to be. And they had to go out and get the civil license. So a lot of them enjoyed it. I got friends who loved it. But I looked at going out and um, it would cost me quite a lot of money 
um, uh, probably about four months, five months pay to get my licenses. You had to start from square one. You get a PPL probably, rubber stamp, but you wouldn't get any more like a CPL or an ATPL. And I didn't have the money. I had three kids um, and I was, the pay was awful. So I, I didn't go out and I stayed in the Air Force. And I'm glad I did because I would have missed flying the Hunter and the Phantom and the Tornado if I did. Right, weather. Someone said to me, um, what's the worst weather I flew in? Well, there's a story in the book, which is uh, the PR9. And we were on a exercise in Malta, going up into Italy to photograph various targets. And then we were coming out of Italy through Sicily and then back to Malta. I was about number four or five in the stream. There were aircraft ahead of me. And we climbed out of low level on the toe of Italy and flew over the Sigonella radio beacon, and everybody seemed to be happy. I called up ahead. I said, the weather doesn't look too good. Anybody got any problems? And everybody said, no, it's fine. It's fine. So I carried on, and the next thing I know, I entered this biggest cumulus thunderstorm cell in my life. It was like being tossed around in a washing machine full of bricks. Someone said to me, it's like driving over a tank range with tanks firing at you. As lightning zapped us, um, hail broke the front windscreen. Luckily, the PR9 had two windscreens. That broke off and disappeared. And um, we put out a mayday call. No one heard us. Eventually, we came out of the cell. We, Myself and my navigator were very shook up. Um, we thought about going back down into the nearest airfield, which was uh, Sigonella, uh, which we didn't because uh, the weather. We called up. Italian Air Force uh, air traffic never heard us. Maltese air, tra air traffic run by the RAF heard us and gave us a steer for Malta. Uh, we had a quick look around the aircraft. It was obviously in a poor shape. Um, the engines were banging and coughing and, and pop surging uh, above a certain power. Set up on a long straight in approach into RAF Luca in Malta. And then we landed and shut down just off the end of the runway. We climbed out, and the fire crews met us, the engineers met us, and we looked at the aircraft, and it was like someone had gone at us with a sledgehammer and a baseball bat. The engine intakes were hammered to bits. The nose cone was damaged. The navigator could see daylight out of a, um, his, his nose cone, which was solidly painted, and uh, no way he could have seen daylight. Um, there was uh, half the fin had gone. The engine um, generator scoops had holes punched through them. You could see daylight through. Um, every compass was wrecked. Uh, and because it was a good day, we actually managed to fly visually. Um, and that was it. We never saw the aircraft again. It went into the hangar. It was deemed too bad to repair and Malta. And so it ignominiously uh, was put aboard a ship and sailed back to the factory in Belfast, Short and Harlands. Um, and I don't know what happened to it after that. So that was the worst weather. The big problem was after that, that scared the pants off me. And every time I saw a thunderstorm after that, I tried to stay well clear. Well, of course, when you're flying around Singapore, Hong Kong, the Far East and Africa, you can't avoid the bad weather and you have to go through uh, weather. We didn't have cloud warning radar or anything. Um, so we had a technique. It wasn't a very good one, but there we are. Right, uh, I'm getting off the point. How did the camera cope at high altitude? Ah, um, yes, Mirage 3s. They used to come up at us from France. When we flew across France, 
we would put a thing on the flight plan said embellish embellishment you're welcome to have a go at us now we couldn't evade in the middle of an airway but the french used to come zooming up and you could see them coming up because you could listen on uh, secondary radar and they, they would sort of appear about ten thousand feet below you and then just drop away and go back and have a glass of wine or whatever the french air force did but when you're in free airspace i flew against mirage threes fives uh the bombers the fours uh the 2000s um lightnings anything really and the pr9 could outturn almost anything just to give you a story do you want another story everybody say yes yep everybody said yes that's good enough for me when we're in singapore <laughs> i was in a pr7 doing the survey of borneo and i had two navigators with me because the pr7 carried two not one and if we didn't take any film because of bad weather we would then come back to singapore uh, and we'd either come back at low level over the south china sea and we would beat up the odd chinese junk or whatever or we would come back at high level and say to the lightnings in singapore come and have a go at us so um they did and we had i I'd got their secret frequencies, which was a bit naughty, but I knew what frequencies they were on. Um, and so I heard them come up. I knew they were there. And I heard them swing around the back. And I heard them call Judy. Now, Judy is the call. I've got visual with the target. Uh, the um, radar site on the ground can shut up. I knew I was trailing um, contrails. So what I did was I pulled the nose up and swung it over into a turn uh, to throw the lightnings off. Unfortunately, I was right at the maximum height of the PR7 at that time, which was about 47, 48,000, and <laughs> flamed both engines out, which stopped the contrails, which confused the lightnings. It also <laughs> confused my two navigators who wondered what the hell was going on. Obviously, I had to descend, and I descended in a, uh, a turn, a 360 turn. I got one engine back quite quickly, and then as I leveled out about 20,000 feet, I got the second engine back, all so far so good. As I continued my turn back towards Singapore, I spotted the two lightnings ahead of me, still trying to find out where I had gone. And they were looking on radar, GCI was squawking, my navigator had put out a mayday, again no one had heard it. And so I thought, well hang on a minute, the engines are working, the navigators haven't disappeared. One nearly went out the door at the side in his, with his dinghy and his parachute. He was not a very happy bunny. Um, but he didn't go, thank goodness, so I brought him home. Never a good thing to lose passengers or crew members or students. Nobody likes that in the Air Force. And um, I closed up on the um, on the two Phantoms, and I went, daka, 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 just like a 10-year-old or 7-year-old schoolboy, and um, shot him down, <laughs> which I enjoyed. <laughs> Landed back, and uh, I got a, a swift kicking from my two navigators, and... Um, I found that I'd actually damaged the aircraft by pulling rivets, pop, pop the rivets out the wings and things. Went to the bar, had a few beers, the lightning boys came in, and of course we started crowing, we shot you down, even the navigators joined in, three or four pints of beer, and everybody took it in good stead. So that was that. Best place in, in Singapore? That's a bloody good question. There's a place on the um, north coast, they do chilli crab, Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful chili crab. I can't remember what it was called. Something, I mean, we're talking many years ago now. Something like um, the seaside or something. Got taken there by a guy with a Ferrari one night. That was a fun night, that was. 
Um, all right. Uh, Rhodesian Air Force. Yeah, the Rhodesians and South Africans. Rhodesians especially. I, I know some of them, and they were even madder than I was. Or the Air Force. Best and worst instructors you had. Um, oh, good. Reheat Sunset. Excellent. Well, well done, Colin Sweetman. Um, best instructor. Oh, that's tricky. That is very tricky. I came across an enormous number of very good instructors. I had uh, one who was an ex-World War II Spitfire pilot, my very first one. Brilliant chap. He'd seen everything, done everything, and was a real maverick. He taught me some of my bad habits. The next one was World Gliding Championship uh, champion on the Jet Provost, a gentleman. My one on the NAT was uh, a PR9 recce pilot, a real gentleman again. Um, I was very lucky, actually. There were some bad ones, but the ones that were permanent were terrific. Now, my worst instructor was probably myself, if I'm honest. I became an instructor uh, unwillingly. I was on a squadron, uh, 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 camera squadron, wanted to stay there. They sent me to be an instructor, and I thought I was the wrong sort of chap. And I took it out of my students, which you should never, never do. I've come across other people since who did the same. And I understand why they do it, but I can't condone it. And I don't think my, I think I was a very good technical instructor. I think I would, I lacked total empathy. And if you read in the book, there's a, a chapter there where I nearly lost a student out the canopy called Doug. Um, and if Doug's listening, sorry, Doug. Um, but they will explain what sort of instructor I was. I then realized that this had to stop. Uh, other things uh, told me that as well. And I then became, I think, a, a, a good instructor because not only was I technically okay, but I also had a lot of sympathy with the students after that because I understood what they were going through. Uh, I used to actually <laughs> fly with a, a cricket glove um, with padding on, which when I was on the bulldog, I threatened to smack them with, but I never did. So please don't have me up. Um, you know, like they do in Hollywood for <laughs> past past demeanours, because they never did. But um, uh, I came across very, very few bad pilot instructors. I came across some pretty shocking navigator instructors. Um, but then again, I come across some brilliant ones. David, Dave Gledhill and I flew together a lot, both when he was an instructor and when we were crewed up together for a while on the OCU. Well, we flew together as a crew, put it like that. We held QRA at Lucas uh, for their summer ball as a crew, which was lovely. And Dave was a brilliant navigator. Best navigator instructor was a guy called John Tyshurst. God rest his soul. Gone now, died sadly. We were chasing a couple of um, GR1s up the East Coast. Been in the range, thick fog, and we were trying to kill them, metaphorically. And John said to me, he said, Phil, do you trust me? And he was a QI. And normally I don't like weapons instructors. But I said, all right, John, I'll trust you. Tell me what your plan is. He said, if the radar is looking down on them, they must be below us, right? So I said, yeah, I understood that. That's logical. Therefore, if they're flying along at 250 feet and avoiding whatever's out there, rigs, ships, whatever, and we just keep behind them, we'll avoid the same obstacles, right? And I went, yeah, I'm going to see where this is going. He said, right, let's go and have them. So we did a Fox 1 on them in the head, turned around the back, let down to what I thought was about 1,500 feet, which was in fog or thick cloud. And I thought, well, that's it. John said, right, I've got them below me. They're about six below. Go down slowly. 
So we went down and down and down, very, very slowly, an inch at a time, inch at a time, got closer and closer and closer, until eventually John said, well, they're just ahead and just below us. And bugger me, sorry, um, pardon me, <laughs> blow me if they didn't appear out of the mist. So I put the burners in and rocketed past them going, Fox 2 or Fox 3 probably, guns, and then climbed up into cloud. And I thought, that would teach you buggers to rely upon uh, uh, TFR. It's not as all right. Did I ever fly? Uh, no. I, uh, did I fly in the Navy days on Portland? No. When I came out of the Air Force, I wanted to fly for Fragu, the Fleet Replenishment Aerial Summit Unit. I don't know what it stands for. Um, but long story short, they lost my application form, so they said, and I ended up working for British Aerospace instead. Um, but I would like to. Um, yes. South African Air Force is brilliant. Um, stumbled across his live chin wag, completely waxed it. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve Ross, whoever you are. Uh, let me just see if I've missed any questions. Hang on. Mike says I can scroll up and scroll down. No, I can't, Mike. Mike lied. Uh, no, you should be in the little sidebar. Um, you should Go be on. able to. Anyway, come on, some more questions then. Otherwise, I'll have to start uh, rambling on. Uh, did I ever fly military in Norway? Uh, yeah, one of the things about the PIR-9, or any camera was, um, the sort of targets you had, and I think I can probably say this, our targets uh, when I was in UK were in Russia, and when the targets uh, when I was in Malta were probably round that area of Turkey going north. Um, uh, and so we used to go to what we call forward operating bases, um, which is where we would deploy to either Turkey or Italy, or uh, certainly for the Near East Air Force, or um, we'd go to Norway when we were in the UK Air Force. And uh, I used to fly a lot in Norway. Norway, to me, is one of the finest places to fly. The, the terrain is stunning. There's a place, a series of islands off the west coast called the Lofoten Islands, and the Fotin Islands are just the most glorious. And everybody who's been there say the same. It's a fantastic place to go for a holiday. Get away from it all. Wonderful scenery. Light, like I've never seen. Ambient light, which was um, stunning. Absolutely stunning. Um, if you want another good place to go, go to Iceland. Iceland is another place like that, only on, obviously on a much smaller scale. Um, Mike says, I've got 10 minutes. Um, would I have liked to fly in the Harrier, Phil? Ooh, low-level RAF, who are you? Um, I wasn't good enough, I must be honest. Um, I wasn't particularly brilliant in training. I was average. Um, it was only through sheer experience that I got above average. Um, and I don't think I would have been good enough to fly Harry. I probably would have killed myself. Same, funny enough, had I not gone to cameras. If I'd gone on to fighters, I'm pretty certain that I would have wiped myself out on a hunter or a lightning or something like that. Uh, and so I was very lucky. I flew the camera with another gator, got the experience, made the mistakes, learned my lesson, and uh, used those lessons when I eventually came on to fighters. Um, I admire the Harrier. I don't know why we've scrapped them. I think it was a brilliant, brilliant concept. Wonderful aircraft. Falklands proved itself. You know, it's got combat experience. Um, and I loved it. I'd love to have flown in it. I've flown in other aircraft. I've flown in the F-16. I can't remember. I'm going to listen as long as you're arm. Going right back to the gannet. Um, 
Yes, the Harry is the toughest jet to fly, uh, bar none. It, it was. Certainly in the early days, they were experimenting with landing techniques, takeoff techniques, short and VTOL landings, and it was a tricky aircraft to fly. Did I ever go to an air show? Um, oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Many. I used to volunteer to, to be the reserve um, aircraft. And so we used to go off with the display aircraft, which meant that he couldn't get drunk the night before because he was doing a display. We could avail ourselves of the hospitality because we were sitting on the ground. And if he broke his aircraft, great. You can have our aircraft. We'll drive back to England or wherever we were. Uh, one day we had to bring the aircraft back with the undercarriage locked down because he'd broken the undercarriage. And we drove right across, sorry, drove, flew right across France at low level with the undercarriage down. And... Um, Loved it, loved it, loved it. Am I still involved with aviation? No, I'm not, sadly. When I left, this is going to sound a bit, what should I say, a bit funny. When I left, I thought, right, that's it. I've flown the best. I couldn't do something else. That's not snobby. It's a bit like playing for Manchester City having been beaten last night by Wigan, that's probably not a good analogy, but it's like being playing for a top-class premiership team and then being asked to play for, um, I don't know, Shrewsbury or I wouldn't say Portsmouth because they're my favourite team, uh, but a team of the lower divisions. Players just rarely do it. Goalkeepers tend to, but um, main team players don't. And I thought, I've left, get over it. I joined the lifeboat. You can probably see it somewhere around there. And um, that gave me the kicks I wanted. Similar atmosphere, camaraderie, um, team spirit, all those things working together. Um, and I just loved it. You know, so I joined the lifeboats and that was my thrills and spills and so on. Um, all right. I learned Lieutenant Colonel once dead sticked a, a Harry after an injury flight. Good for him. Wow. Um, right, what else have we got? Uh, have I ever flown a 56 reserve? Yes, yes, that was um, that was my final tour on the F3s. Uh, and from there, I uh, decided that um, I saw the writing on the wall. I thought the Russians have quit, we've won, and um, time to go off and do something else. I went out to Saudi Arabia for a while as well to teach the Saudis to fly on the PC9 but only in the simulator. I wouldn't want to fly with them. Having said that, some of them were excellent. I say some of them. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, and I then stayed on flying, I suppose, in a, a loose capacity in the simulator. I taught on the Hawk Sim. Mm, I can't see if I've got my Hawk badge on. Yeah, I taught on the Hawk Sim at uh, Valley with uh, British Airspace, and I quite enjoyed doing that. Um, and that was as dangerous as I wanted to get at that stage. Um, all uh, oh, right. Oh, I see someone's asking for a two-seat ride in the Harrier. Yeah, I love to have flown, as I say, a lot of great old aircraft around, Mustang, Bearcat, you name it. My dad flew the Wellington, and um, just to show he was just as stupid as I was, he was on the Wellington OCU up at uh, near, out of Lossiemouth, but at the reserve field, I can't remember what it was called. I've been there, um, not Kinross. Uh, Tayside, something like that. Anyway, a friend of his came up for the day to see him in a uh, hurricane. And he said to my dad, Brian, would you like a trip in um, my hurricane? My dad said, yeah, I'd love to. 
So he, he sort of sat on the side of the cockpit, showed him how to start it up, where all the levers were, and he said, right, off you go, a couple of circuits and come, <laughs> come back. And he did, but he couldn't get the undercarriage up. He couldn't remember which was the undercarriage lever. So he flew around with the undercarriage down and uh, landed Milltown. That's it, Milltown Airfield. Landed back at Milltown and said, thank you very much. Could you imagine that happened today? I think the one thing about the modern aircraft, the modern air force, is it's a lot more safety conscious than it was in my day. I remember that uh, Dave Gladhill did a. Again, let me just say for those of you who've turned in late, Dave Gladhill was a brilliant author, and uh, there's one of his books, Phantom in Focus. Love it, brilliant. Next book is called Fighters in the Falklands. Falklands was interesting. I wish I had another hour. I'll tell you about that. Third book is Fancy for Focus. I've done that one, haven't I? Must be another one there. Um, Tornado, F3 in Focus. And, of course, the best book in the world is my book, which is Patrolling the Cold War Skies, Reheat Sunset. <laughs> lots of all those stories in a bit more detail. Lots of lovely pictures. Well worth. It's now, actually, it was 30 quid. It's now £17 with free postage on, um, uh, what do you call it, eBay and Amazon and all the rest of it. Uh, so it's brilliant value, and I'm not just saying that. It is good value. If you don't like it, send it to me, and I promise to give you your postage back. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the best I can offer you. Um, am I missing any questions? Uh, if you ever fancy an exhibition match for Hatfield United, it would be an honour to fly with our warden. Mike has my – well, Colin, that sounds brilliant. I'd love to. Um, yeah. Yes, I mean, someone uh, – Nigel saw Sodden is saying he misses the fellowship, the friendship. You can't, you can't beat it. The the camaraderie in the in the forces is like a. It's not like a family. It's different. It's not like a club. It's different. It is the best thing you can have. And people should look out for their buddies. And if they don't, they soon leave. Um, Falklands. Good grief. My last, my last scramble. I, I'll tell you that, my last ever scramble. Um, I was. In the Falklands, on tornadoes, uh, my navigator was an ex-fighter uh, controller. And which plane out of history would I fly? Uh, Spitfire or Mosquito, easy. And my navigator was um, a fighter controller. And the little box in the corner that connects you to the fighter controller master clicked. And he said, Phil, he said, I think we should go and have a pee. So I'm having a pee, and all of a sudden, the voice comes over these um, tannoy uh, alert um, uh, QRA. So my navigator's gone. I'm doing up my zips, desperately trying not to wet myself, and I run for the aircraft. As I'm running for the aircraft, I suddenly realize there are two pilots running for the same aircraft. I'm going for the wrong one. So I say to my other pilot, <laughs> buy them off, turn around, ran for the right aircraft, got to the right aircraft to find that my navigator was in, the power was on, the radar was coming up, the, the inertial navigators were coming up. I thought, oh, bloody hell, I'm late. I better... Uh, do a quick one. So I strapped in. I didn't do my leg restrainers or my arm restrainers. I just put my shoulder strap on, my lap strap on, uh, started the right-hand engine, almost instantaneously um, started the left-hand engine, waved the chocks away, uh, told the ground crew to bugger off uh, and close the canopy as I taxied. In fact, I think my uh, Clive told me to shut the canopy. I'd forgotten that. Short access runway, Burners in as we went up the short access, uh, all the checks were done, flaps, Peter heater, pins, all that sort of stuff, and away we went. It was something like three and a half minutes. 
it seemed like three and a half hours. Got to a safe height, safe speed, did the rest of my uh, seat pin checks um, and leg restraints and arm restraints and went off a, just below the Mac number across the Falklands heading for the contact. We picked him up, told the radar that we had him, and he said he's starting to turn, uh, and he did. So we headed him off. My number two was waiting for his navigator, who was the boss doing paperwork. They pitched up about 45 miles behind us. That's life. Anyway, we then, Clive said to me, that's mine now, we're probably just going to make him before he leaves the edge of the port of the Falkland zone. And sure enough, as we got towards the edge of the zone, there was cloud. And someone said, he's hiding in the cloud. Who was that someone? That was me. I said, he's hiding in the cloud. I'm getting carried away now. But he just popped out of the cloud before we got to the edge of the zone. So I managed to fly alongside him while Clive took some pictures. And it was an American WC-135, a weather ship, a spy ship. And he was obviously tweaking our tail to see how long it would take us to find him. Normally, we were allowed 15 minutes. 10 minutes or better was the what we like to achieve. And Lightnings and us could probably do it in half that time again. And so, obviously, he hadn't allowed enough time. We caught him with his pants down, flicked him the bird, rolled over the top, and then just hit the edge of the zone and flew back to uh, Stanley to, uh, no, Mount Pleasant, sorry, to land. Uh, that was my last ever scramble. I got pictures somewhere. In fact, they're in the book. Let me see if I can find them. No, we've been taking too long. Um, I'll talk. Uh, oh, there he is. There he is. I don't know if you can see it. WC-135. And on the other page is a Russian, which I intercepted. So I'll just wait for that to come up on my screen, which is running about 20 uh, seconds behind the rest of the world. Um, there we go. Oh, right. Mike saying, I hope you all enjoyed this. As you can see, Keebs is quite a character. So obviously I'm getting the, I'm getting the finger myself to, to it's time to, uh, to go. Oh, yeah, look at the time. Someone's been rabbiting on for 66 minutes. Hey, here we go. Here comes the book. There we go. Yeah, so, yeah, so Phil, I just want to thank you very much for being on the show. It was, um, I'm sure I'm, you can see everyone's loved it. And uh, Keeves also very kindly gave us a mention in the book, which I'm still very grateful for. So um, I'm sure Keeves will probably be on the show again. Would you say yes for that, um, Phil? Would I come on again? Yeah. You've gone very faint on me, Mike. You'll have to uh, talk up a bit. Because obviously I've turned off the sound for YouTube. Um, would I come on again? Yeah, but I think I think I've probably exhausted all my anecdotes, especially go and read them. Um, but uh, yeah, so, uh, honestly, some great questions, some some really really good questions. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, everybody. Yeah, so thanks again, and yeah, go and make sure you pick up Phil's book, which you can, as he says, you can pick up on eBay or Amazon now, and. Uh, yeah, so thanks very much, everyone, for joining us, and a big thanks to Phil. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you, and see you soon.